0: This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. 25 years ago, violinist Rachel Barton Pine put out a pioneering recording celebrating black composers of the 18th and 19th centuries. She decided to reissue that recording on its 25th anniversary, and guess what? She also refreshed it, kind of by an unusual twist of fate. You'll hear that story and much more this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julie Almacher. Rachel, your latest release is celebrating the 25th anniversary of a pioneering recording that you put out in 1997, and it celebrates Black composers of the 18th and 19th centuries. When you originally released this recording, I'm curious, how did this album change your life at that time?
1: Yeah, well, it really did. I mean, I released it like I... It would have any other record, music that I was personally excited about and really wanted to share with the world. And I naively wasn't even thinking about issues of inclusion or social justice or whatever. And then after the record was released, it was just, you know totally uh, amazing. I started getting invited to serve on diversity panels, and I joined the board of Sphinx and started getting numerous requests from students and parents and teachers and colleagues for more of this repertoire. Of course, I was far from an expert on it yet. Um, But most of the people who've been doing a lot of work in Black music research were doing so in the realm of academia. And so if you think about like, the average Suzuki student in the average town somewhere in the US. They just didn't have access to the history and the repertoire. Um, you know, the fact that there were all black orchestras in America in the 1800s, which were kind of the equivalent of the Negro baseball leagues, or the fact that um, Frederick Douglass and Coretta Scott King played the violin. You know, and that this is not somebody else's music. And then a lot of the music itself was long since out of print or in manuscript only. And even things that were published were not published in editions suitable for children. So after I started my RVP Foundation for the purpose of supporting young artists with instrument loans and financial assistance, I realized, wait a sec, I've got a not-for-profit here and a project that needs to be done. And um, why don't I go for it? And so I was really lucky that a number of generous people um, joined my board of advisors some amazing conductors and composers, um, educators, performers. Researchers, a lot of them um, African American, and and you know really helped guide um, the start of our project in terms of figuring out how what to do and how to go about it. And now, of course, we've expanded way past our original beginnings as you know producing curricular volumes. We have our coloring book and timeline poster, but also uh, just a lot of free resources on our musicbyblackcomposers.org website. We've got podcast lists and children's books that are on related topics. And directories of more than 150 historic composers, more than 300 living composers, um, directories of sheet music, school presentation materials, bibliographies, discographies, and so on and so forth. There's just a lot of stuff there. There's still a lot more that we're working on, and it's very exciting. I mean, um, you know, we've been supporting programs through the years that specifically provide instrument lessons for youngsters from. Um, underrepresented communities. But now, like, everybody is suddenly interested in this music, better late than never. And it's really thrilling to see programs, you know, that demographically where they're located, um, most of their students are maybe white and Asian, and they still want to play this music because, frankly, you know, besides ideas about representation, it's just great music. And we've all been missing out by not having it in our lives for all these years. And, you know, that's the most exciting exciting thing is that people are just like, wow, this stuff is great. And I honestly think it would have been part of the music that we know and love all along, if not for historic discrimination.
0: Tell me a little bit about how people can access that website. Yep. It's just musicbyblackcomposers.org. That's easy enough. I also want to just um, ask you a little bit more about when you say better late than never for others who are finally putting out recordings by underrepresented composers and artists. Why do you think it has taken so long for the classical world to embrace these composers and their music?
1: Well, you know, the classical world is not for profit. And, you know, even though they exist on donations, they also, you know, ticket sales are important. And it's understandable that, you know, they might be wary of, you know, being less conservative and you know you want to make sure that the audience knows that they're coming to a program of music that they already know and love and it's hard to break free of that it's almost like a catch 22 because how can you know once they know these pieces they're going to love them but if they don't yet know them how will they ever get to know them and i think now um with all of the attention given to issues of diversity um thankfully you know the public and the programmers are are all realizing wait a sec we're missing out if we don't get to hear this stuff and they're excited to discover it and trusting that you know things are being properly curated and what they get to hear will indeed be wonderful and the happy thing is there's there's no lack of wonderful stuff to choose among. It's not like, well, there's a lot of second-rate stuff and maybe a few decent ones. It's like, no, piece after piece, composer after composer is like first-rate, and there's so much. And it's, you know, whatever else is going on in the world that's of great concern, at least in this one area, we're on the right track, and it's a great time to be participating in classical music.
0: So 25 years ago, you put out this pioneering recording. However, the idea for it sort of started to develop a few years earlier when you were just about 17 years old. Can you talk a little bit about the premiere you were asked to do as you were rediscovering uh, a concerto from an 18th century French composer?
1: Yeah, well, I was really lucky to grow up in Chicago because whereas most people from my generation had never even heard of such a thing as a black composer until maybe when they went to college. Um, I grew up during my student years being very aware of this body of repertoire and of its high quality, thanks to groups like Paul Freeman's Chicago Sinfonietta, which is still one of the most diverse orchestras in the country in terms of its members and programming. Um, The Chamber Music Collective called the New Black Music Repertory Ensemble, Um, Michael Morgan, the amazing African-American conductor who was assistant at Chicago Symphony under Schulte and then Berenboim and also principal conductor of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, where I served as concertmaster, he would bring works by Black composers um, to us um, at Civic to play. And at one point, we actually did a concert entirely of the music of Black composers. In 1992, it was mostly 20th century works um, by composers both um, living and and no longer living. But um, there was a recently rediscovered composer. Um, we've all heard these days of the Chevalier de Saint georges the wonderful Afro French composer who is, you know, the greatest swordsman in Europe and the inspiration to Mozart, and you know, wrote all these operas and string quartets and violin concertos. And all of that. But there is another um, composer from the same time, Chevalier de Modemampas. There's no existing visual image of him, but all the musicologists for many decades assumed that he must be of African descent because his name always had, um, he was always called Chevalier de Modemampas Lenoir. So what else could you think from the Lenoir? Well, years after my album was released, um, which because it was this this concerto which hadn't been played since the late 1700s, actually it sparked many things in my life, including starting to compose my own cadenzas. Um, You know, before that I had never written a cadenza for a Mozart concerto because I thought, well, how could I write one as good as Joachim? And then nobody had written one for this Moda Mampa concerto. Of course, back in the 1700s, they would have just improvised it. And so I had no choice but to write my own. And I realized, wait a sec, doing my own cadenza is the most personal way I can express my feelings about the music. And after that, I started writing cadenzas to all the famous concertos as well. So that was also life-changing, this experience of playing this, um, this newly found historic work. But in any case, um, when it came time to record my first concerto record a few years later, I was so young that i I just felt like it wasn't quite time yet to record all the ones that I've since recorded among the you know, the famous masterpieces, the Brahms and the Mendelssohn and the Beethoven and the Brook and the Mozart, and all of that stuff. So I thought, well, I really love this this Mon pas, this French violin concerto. And I wonder what else I might put with it. And I went over to some libraries, including Center for Black Music Research. And I found other works for violin and orchestra by Black composers from the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s. And I decided to do the classical and romantic era repertoire for my recording, and yeah, then years later, they discovered that Monimampa Mon had actually served in a regiment of the French army who all rode black horses. So the Lenoir referred not to his ethnicity but to his mount. And so he was just actually a random white Frenchman, still an absolutely charming violin concerto. I'm glad I got to perform it and record it, but it certainly no longer belongs on my album of violin concertos by black composers. So that one was excised. And at the same time, back in 97, when I was looking for repertoire, among the various 20th century pieces I encountered was a single page from a Florence Price manuscript. And I was told that she had written two violin concertos, but that they, along with many of her other works, were considered to be lost to the world forever. There was no hope. They would never be found. They would never be heard. And this was really tragic because I knew her compositional voice. From some of her songs and solo piano pieces. And it just seemed like such an incredible loss that we would never get to play or hear these violin concertos. And so Um, As I'm sure you've heard, just a few years ago, this treasure trove of her manuscripts was discovered in an old trunk in an abandoned farmhouse. It's like you can't make a story like that up. It's just so amazing. And um, yeah, and sitting in there among all the symphonic and chamber music were were indeed both of her violin concertos. (laughs) So it's been, you know, such a pleasure to finally get to play it. It's every bit as wonderful as I had always known it would be. And in a way, you could say that the album that I've just, you know, re-released or whatever, um, newly released, um, it's really the album that I would have made in 97 had I only been able to back then. So I couldn't be more excited.
0: Why did you choose to record her second violin concerto?
1: Well, her first violin concerto was really an experimentation in the genre from when she was much younger. It's also a very worthy piece, but the... The second violin concerto is the true masterpiece. Um, it was from the very last year of her life. It's her fully mature compositional voice, and it's just absolutely great. Um, and I mean, the, both of them are getting performances these days, but you know, I think everybody would agree number two is the the best of the two pieces. And you know, certainly if I was going to record
0: only one, you know, there was there was no doubt about it. It had to be the number two so if there's a highlight in that concerto for you as the performer can you identify that for me and then i'll also share a little bit of that with our listeners
1: yeah well structurally it's very interesting because it's it's not multi-movement it's kind of a succinct 15 minutes or so single movement concerto but it's sectionalized so you do have you know slower lyrical parts that then go back into the more dramatic moments so, so it feels like it has you know a ebb and flow to it, but it's not like a movement ends and then another movement begins in the way of a traditional concerto. Um, So it's amazing that she was able to say so much in such a short amount of time um, really speaks to her genius. And I particularly love the lyrical melody that appears um, three times throughout the piece in the solo violin and once in the orchestra. It almost feels like close to a prayer somehow, and of course, pers- you know, like um, many great African American composers of classical and other genres, she does have a background in the Black Church, and you know that may have been, you know, deliberately or subconsciously that may have been where that melody came from. Um, I mean, it's an original melody, but you know that that aesthetic, that feeling that she brought to it. But um, yeah, there's uh, so much variety to her concerto, I guess. I can't really pick a favorite moment (laughs) because every moment is my favorite. I'm still getting to know it. I'm now performing it at concerts and, you know, finding new things each time.
0: This recording opens with Joseph Bologna's Violin Concerto in A Major, who is often referred to as the Black Mozart. And you mentioned something in your liner notes that I thought was pretty significant. Bologna was actually the elder of those two composers, so perhaps we should be looking at it the other way around. (laughs) Can you talk a little
1: bit more about that? Yeah, well, it was actually my little girl, Yeah, my little girl, you know, she she was studying from our Music by Black Composers curriculum alongside her Suzuki books and other stuff. And, um, you know, in our curriculum, we have the biography of each composer. So she was reading about Joseph Bologna, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and it was talking about how his symphonious concertants had inspired Mozart to try his hand at a symphonia Concertante, and so on. And Sylvia was like, wait a sec, mom, shouldn't Mozart be the white Saint-Georges? And I just thought, well, duh, indeed he should. And so, I mean, I understand why people have said the Black Mozart because it tells you two pieces of information. It tells you what time period Bologna comes from. It tells you, you know, it's a compliment as to the quality of his music. But certainly, you know, in terms of accuracy, it's a little backwards. Yeah,
0: from the mouths of babes, right? <laughs> exactly. Bologna was also an incredible swordsman. How might that play into the way that he composes for the violin in this concerto?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, You know, he was considered to be the greatest swordsman in all of Europe. So it's basically the equivalent of, like, a gold medal winning Olympic athlete who's also one of the greatest violin soloists of the day. No human like this currently exists, and it's just incredible to think that one once did. And there are indeed parts, as a part at the end of the third movement of the Concerto, that I, my bow arm is just whipping through the air. can't help but think that, you know, somehow his his lance and saber had something to do with that passage. And my father, interestingly enough, was actually captain of the fencing team at University of Chicago. And um, the, the guy couldn't carry a tune to save his life. So the joke in my family was, if I'd gotten my dad's musicality and my mom's eye-hand coordination, I probably would have been pretty bad. <laughs> but I always think of my dad's swords when I'm playing the music
0: of saint George. You feature a composer on this recording that's new to me. Cuban composer by the name of Jose White Lafitte. Tell me about this composer and how you discovered him.
1: Yeah, well, thanks to some of the library archives that I consulted with, um, and some of the you know work of researchers who had gone before me, who had compiled, you know, a lot of people had compiled kind of titles of different things, but then you still had to figure out where the heck to find them at different libraries around the world. <laughs> lots and lots of you know going to unsorted boxes in the basements of. HBCUs or the attic of the composer's grandniece. I wish that smartphones had existed during some of those years because I never took photos of some of my archaeological adventures. But um, in any case, Jose White was an Afro-Cuban composer from the 1800s, the Romantic era. He was sponsored by Luis Moro Gottschalk, to go and study at the Paris Conservatoire, where he was a classmate of Sarasate, Vuitton, and Wieniawski, and considered to be, you know, every bit the equal of those other violinist composers. Um, As a virtuoso violinist, he had a stiller solo career on multiple continents, rave reviews, Everywhere he went, he actually returned um, to the Paris Conservatoire as a faculty member at one point. And George Inescu was one of his students. And of course, Inescu was Menouin's teacher. So Jose White is the grand teacher of Yehudi Menuhin. little fun violin trivia for you there. Um, but he wrote, you know, many, many, um, you know, he didn 't g- go in for symphonies or string quartets, neither did any of those guys of that type but um, you know he wrote many, many pieces for violin and piano and virtuoso etudes, um, all with this you know kind of Cuban flavor. His violin concerto doesn 't sound at all like his ethnic background it 's completely European but absolutely first rate I mean every bit as good as something you know it's it 's not like a Brahms concerto, but it 's not meant to be it's it 's very much like a Viielski concerto and every bit as good as as the Viielski and Viton that we regularly play. All the virtuals so of fireworks. You know, the, the lush orchestration. The touching moments, the dramatic moments. enjoyable. And for 25 years, I've been trying to get professional orchestras to program it and have not succeeded in getting one single group to agree to to do it. You know, how sad is that? You know, it's such a unique opportunity to reach out to both your Latino and African-American communities in your town if you program this piece. And it's such a good piece. The audience is guaranteed to love it. But understandably, you know, orchestras are hesitant to put something on the concert program that audiences have never heard of. And is that catch-22. How are they going to hear of it if they never hear it? So um, I at a certain point, I was just like so frustrated. I was like, you know, I'll know the world has finally changed if I ever get to perform that darn Jose White concerto. And what do you know, last year for the first time ever, not only did I get to perform it, but orchestra's asked me to perform it without me even having to suggest it to them. I'm doing some more this year and hopefully onwards and upwards that I'll keep playing it lots of times. And I'm really excited to see which of my colleagues might take it up and add their interpretations to the conversation. And, you know, hopefully it'll take its rightful place and be enjoyed just as much as, you know, those of Wienowski and Viettel.
0: When you performed this concerto, Live with an orchestra for the first time, what was most memorable about that experience and who was the orchestra?
2: Oh,
1: goodness. You know, it all mushes together sometimes when you're on tour and you're like, wait, did I go to that place first or that place first? I'd have to go back and look at my website, to be honest. (laughs) But I do know what I'm doing next, which is um, next week I'm off to Washington State and I'm going to perform it with the Walla Walla Symphony, um, which is actually the town from which my mother-in-law's extended family hails. Got a little family connection there. (laughs) Anyways, um, but yeah, I mean, getting to hear it again after having not heard it Um, you know, with the orchestra around me since 97. Of course, I've got my own album. I can pop in on Spotify or whatever. But, um, you know, just hearing it around me and feeling the music again was such a great pleasure. But then seeing my prediction come true where the audience was on their feet and, you know, clapping very enthusiastically. And I mean, that was just so gratifying because I just, you know, based on the quality of the music and the the type of music, I just knew that people would love it. But seeing that confirmed was, you know, very, very gratifying and um, gave me a
0: lot of hope. Rachel, in reissuing this recording and actually updating it 25 years later, what did you discover about yourself that maybe even surprised you?
1: Gosh, I don't know that I discovered anything that surprised me. I was happy to note that um, I felt like my interpretation of the Jose White was still fresh that, I mean, not that I haven't matured as an artist, I hope I have, but that I felt like what I did with it, that I wasn't like, oh, that was the younger me, Ugh. but I was like, oh, you know, I, I like that. I, I still stand behind it. Um, the saint George, I still think it's a good recording, um, but my... Um, my approach to the classical period has really um, radically changed because in the intervening years, I've had the opportunity to do so much work with period instrument ensembles and artists and you know a lot of Baroque violin playing of works from the classical era. And so even if I'm playing on my modern equipment, my normal violin and bow, um, I do have a different aesthetic touch when it comes to the classical period. And so when I listen to my old recording of the Saint-Georges, it's still something I like and still something, you know, that I think is good violin playing, but it's not anymore the way that the current me would play it. Um, But yeah, but the José White and the Saint-Georges actually still sound like the current me. and, um, And then the Florence Price, of course, you know, is truly the current me. And I think people who listen to them all do hear, you know, more colors and more nuances you know from <laughs> me 25 years after you know that many more thousands of hours of of practicing and learning about music and that's really nice of course it's a different violin i was playing a brothers amati back in 97 and now i'm playing you know the glorious Ex-Bazzini, ex soldat 1742 guinari del jesu um so you know it's nice to to still feel proud of what i did back when i was um, almost a, a kid and then you know now to to also have the gratification of feeling like you know i've grown as an artist and yeah it's it's just fun
0: It was reissued and refreshed, a recording celebrating violin concertos by black composers through the centuries with violinist Rachel Barton Pine. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.